Welcome to another installment of the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In today's episode, we continue our World After COVID-19 series as we chat with Sangeet Chaufla. Sangeet is the president and CEO of the Graduate Management Admission Council. GMAC is an international non-profit providing products and services to academic institutions and prospective graduate management education students. GMAC owns and administers the Graduate Management Admission Test, commonly known as GMAT. This interview took place nine weeks after COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. Once again, the interview was conducted by GBSN CEO Dan Leclerc and our board chairman, Sumitra Dutta. Here's Dan to get us going. You know as well as we do that this is a, a, a pretty important time in many ways, right? It's, um, it's a big event, it's global, it's uh, cuts across every possible sector it, um, in every aspect of our lives. Um, at the moment, I know that's the way we feel. Um, but what we're most interested in is um, the, the future, right? Looking ahead and the world after coronavirus. And what we thought we'd do is just start with a very general question that might lead us towards more specific ones. But the, the, the question is, um, really quite simply, do you see this as a turning point? Uh, a turning point for the world, a turning point for business, a turning point for, for education. Do you see what's happening now, this very moment with coronavirus as a turning point? I think it's inevitable that there's gonna be some kind of impact around, uh, you know, just starting with the way society organized itself, our views towards the globalized world, the way business organizes itself, and then, you know, getting closer to our particular home, the way management education sees itself or is delivered. Uh, I think some of it depends, at, at this point of time, depends on, uh, uh, what the impact of the virus is, because we are still relatively early in uh, uh, in what we are seeing. So, you know, there's one scenario, uh, which at this point of time, I personally don't subscribe to, but I'm not an epidemiologist, that, uh, that says that in another couple of weeks, everything, the, the curves will start flatten, economies will start opening up and, uh, uh, we'll have a V-shaped economic recovery, and uh, uh, we will look back on this as an uh, unfortunate time in our lives, but not a transformative or a change times in our lives. There's another scenario which says that the impact of the virus will be more far-reaching, uh, uh, that we will not recover that quickly, uh, that um, unemployment um, across the world will surge. It'll lead to a reordering of society, a reordering of the way business gets uh, uh, developed, potentially a fairly significant backlash against globalization, which has been an underlying trend in our lives for the last maybe three decades. And uh, 
And if you subscribe to that, uh, then um, uh, we probably are going to see some fundamental differences in the way the world looks like uh, uh, as, we, as we move forward. Uh, the reality is probably somewhere between these two extremes as it often is. Uh, but I, I would think to more specifically answer your question is yes, right? We will see, we will see a change in the way we organize ourselves, the way we uh, just little things like the way travel happens, the way the impact that has on industry related on travel, which is what uh, uh, six of the world's uh, GDP is somewhat related to the travel, uh, 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 to travel and tourism. Uh, but how supply chains are put together, uh, uh, the way people relate to each other, uh, uh, the way groups are formed. So, so I, I, I suspect that there's a potential for some fairly significant change. Uh, some of it could be for the good too. So Sangeet, uh, clearly, you know, as you say correctly, one is, you know, one cannot fully predict the biological phenomena completely. But clearly, even if the recovery is short or long, people have been impacted. And this kind of an impact is something that is unique for many of us. And you know, we haven't seen the stoppage of entire economies and you know, people being forced to stay at home in entire countries. And this is like quite remarkable. Um, so in some sense, the shock of this change has been felt, is being felt. Where do you think we'll see the changes you know, in behavior going forward? Uh, where do you think will be the primary sort of thrusts of change, uh, you know, either in businesses or in governments or in individual behaviors in terms of even how universities and schools operate? Well, one of the biggest changes that I suspect many of us are beginning to also pick up is uh, we are changing the way we relate to each other. Um, so this, I, I think it starts at the family level, it starts at your work group level, it starts at a society sort of level. Uh, uh, it's an interesting counterpoint to what we are seeing is that as we are isolating more, we are beginning to rediscover the value of connectedness more. Um, uh, in my organization, we have never spoken to each other more than we have in the last two weeks. And it's strange that I'm saying that since all of us, our offices are completely shut down. Uh, there is nobody in the office and there are 200 of us who are completely remote. And we are actually saying that we are, uh, uh, we are more connected. Uh, in, so, so it's an interesting counterpoint that we are beginning to realize that what we sort of took for granted uh, which is that we were there for each other, we now have to actually work for it, we are beginning to value that. Um, even, uh, I think, I've been reading about this, but we are seeing this in our own organization, that people who used to say, well, it would be very cool to work from home, I'll have all this flexibility, I can manage my own life. Most people, if you would bump them today, they'd say, I'd rather actually work in the office because I like that connectedness, I like that interaction. So we're beginning to value that human interaction. So that's, uh, that is a change I think that we are going to end up feeling that the, you know, we, we were becoming a little bit of a sort of very self-censored society. So maybe that is gonna end up, you know, a very atomic society about this is about me. We were 
maybe going to work, we were going to university, but it was all about me. We are beginning to see that it is actually about some of one of a collective good. Now this may seem a little idealistic, but that is what I'm hoping for, if you will. Uh, I think on the business side though, uh, there's obviously changes in the way we do business, but also there's a way that business is gonna um, organize itself. I think uh, supply chain theory is being questioned. You know, traditional ways we organize our supply chain is really being questioned around this. Uh, what level of inventory, you know, capital efficiency and just-in-time inventory is, is, is being exposed in certain ways. Uh, global supply chains for critical items are beginning to get exposed. So, you know, we always used to think about things like dual sourcing our supply chains, but we generally tended to think about them as having two different suppliers. We didn't spend talk about locational risks, you know, uh, health risks, country risks, borders, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I suspect that policymakers are going to have to play a role and are going to have to realize that uh, uh, when we are talking about uh, critical services and critical pieces of our infrastructure, that uh, uh, there needs to be a certain amount of management of that, just you know, going for the lowest price point across the world. Uh, is uh, exposing all of us to a certain amount of um, um, uh, risk associated with it. Uh, today, it may be the virus, but tomorrow it may be it, it may be something else. Uh, there may also be recognition that our notion of a collective defense has to be sort of different. It's not necessarily about the amount of money that we invest in things like armed forces and things. We really have to be uh, 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 investing in a variety of different factors and, you know, 9-11 taught us the importance of intelligence as opposed to militaries and I think this is going to teach us the importance of uh, public health. Last point I'd make, which I don't know if we'll do because, uh, you know, we are, as you said, we have, we have certain, as a society, we tend to have uh, short attention span sometimes uh, is will we change our recognition from and this is maybe more particularly true in the United States is uh, we reward heroes right and uh, you know we reward the fireman who goes into save some save somebody from a burning building but we never invest enough or reward the fire inspector that stops the building from being burnt in the first from catching fire in the firm first place. We reward the heroics of the doctors and nurses on the front line, and we should. I mean, I'm, I'm not taking anything away. They're doing an exceptional job. But we don't really actually pay attention to public health and public health infrastructure. Uh, so is that recognition going to end up changing? Uh, I hope so, but uh, uh, whether uh, our political environment rewards those kind of investments is still a case in point. It's hard, it's hard in a political environment to invest in stockpiles of masks, if you will, which nobody ends up seeing. It's a lot easier to invest in a, a fancy new fighter jet or an aircraft carrier. It's an amazing amount of territory you've covered <laughs> across many of our questions related to 
the government, the business, and, and the uh, individual behavior, even leadership, I think um, you've, you've touched on. I wonder if, if we could maybe drill down on a couple of things in particular um, that I, you know, if we, just, if we just start with the governments and, you know, mm -hmm. you, you started to talk about, I, I wrote it down, collective defense. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the implications for the way we view uh, globalization, um, you know, the trajectory of globalization, the way um, not only governments, but businesses interact and connect with each other. Yeah, so we, you know, we are in what the fourth decade of globalization, uh, uh, which has been driven by the free flow of goods, services, people, and that's obviously led to huge reordering of supply chains. Uh, so we have now very complex, complex supply chains uh, 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 spread out across the world, generally in search of the highest levels of efficiencies or maybe the lowest uh, uh, price points for every component in our supply chain. You know, if we, if we borrow from the world of finance and say, uh, you know, like we say, the rate of return in a financial investment has to be risk adjusted. I wonder whether we are going to think about supply risk adjusting our supply chains and basically saying, uh, uh, that level of complexity is adding uh, unacceptable level of risk. Uh, and so, so, so that, that, that'll have certain kind of implications as, as those areas come together. And it'll probably be more, when you're looking at what governments or societies tend to think of as uh, essential services or critical services, uh, uh, that's gonna have a bigger impact. Uh, can you can you real can we really afford to have uh, all the raw materials for critical drugs to be made in one country, uh, China in this case a point, and this has nothing to do with China. It just has to. We are talking about dependency of one country, or a large proportion of uh, of patent generic drugs be made in India. Um, is is just adding it's adding risk to overall societies and governments will probably have to kind of step in and regulate it because business by itself may not be willing willing to step up and uh, so we may see a resurgence in regulation as a result of, uh, as a result of this which is counter to the general trend that we've been seeing around the world which has been around uh, deregulation uh, so so you may just see the, as a result of it, a much more activist, uh, almost, I hate to use the word because it has connotations with it, but almost an industrial policy uh, that comes, uh, that's associated with it. Short term, uh, there's, there's also an impact around the movement of people, right, as a result of that. Uh, uh, we have huge movement of people, uh, not, not just for employment and edu education and employment, but also for tourism and tra general travel. Uh, at least for a period of time, I would expect that they, we are gonna see some contraction associated with that. And as you see more contraction associated with that, either because uh, visa regimes are getting tighter, um, governments are less willing to uh, 
led all that movement of mobility of people because the, if you assume that the virus in some form or the other is going to be around for a period of time, you're going to see some of that contraction, which is going to have an impact on uh, uh, the sectors of our economy which are dependent on that. Uh, certainly education is one of that, uh, but so is all the, the hospitality industry um, and the transportation industry. Uh, these are big sectors of our overall economies and as they su suffer from the impact of that, um, uh, there's gonna be some reordering. You know, I've read somewhere that Marriott has followed 125,000 people. I mean, that's not an insignificant number, but if you look at the multiplier effect of that, that's probably half a million people of what these people used to consume and, and all that kind of stuff. The change in a view about globalization, if it does come across, is not limited to a particular area. It is gonna have a pretty fundamental effect around. Now, if you start seeing that, um, uh, if you put, put tourism, if you think about tourism or travel, if less people travel internationally, there's less volume. You know, one of the things that's driven this has been the virtuous cycle has been more people traveling, you know, more economics, economies around the world doing well, more jobs, rising wages, more people willing to travel, more volume of travel, driving down cost of travel, leading to more people traveling. That's the virtuous cycle, which has been uh, so useful for us. Uh, the virtuous cycle could become the vicious cycle. Uh, loss of jobs, loss of income, lower volumes of travel, more restriction of travels by governments, reduction of volumes, increase in prices of international affairs or hotel rooms and stuff like that, leading to less people traveling. And now we're already also talking about a reverse and a, 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 a reverse cycle, which uh, leads to uh, uh, some unfortunate effects on a huge sector of the economy. I think this, the kind of jobs uh, that many people started their lives with, right? When you think about many, many people, uh, they start their lives in uh, travel and tourism related functions. You know, people started working in restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, an impact uh, I was reading about recently is uh, many struggling artists actors and various other forms of people in the arts community uh, sustain themselves until they make it by working in the hospitality industry. If the hospitality industry is impacted, the sources of livelihood of the arts industry is impacted. So now you're seeing a second derivative effect that a reduction of travel is leading to a reduction of jobs in the hospitality industry, which is actually leading to less uh, uh, actors on Broadway. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it's an interesting chain of events that starts. Uh, the economy is incredibly interrelated. I think, you know, you raised a very interesting set of issues around the virtuous cycle, the vicious cycle. What do you think, you know, can we do either in businesses or in government or as leaders in society and organizations to not to let this vicious cycle, you know, take dominance, even though in some ways, some of those are elements are being played out right now because of biological concerns. But 
how to not make that the new normal? I'm not certain, actually. It's, I'm not certain that there's an obvious answer. Maybe there is, but, uh, uh, you know, obviously one area that all leadership has to do is, and all individuals have to do is, uh, reduce the impact of the virus because the lower the impact of the virus, uh, whether it's through enhanced testing, enhanced social distancing, our own ability to be able to deal with the consequence of what we are living with right now for a short period of time for a longer term good. So it's like a delayed gratification, if you will. Better we respond to the situation and the better leadership we have that helps us respond to the situation, uh, including ourselves, the lesser the impact will be. And the lesser the impact will be, the lesser the dislocation is going to be. Because if the dislocation becomes severe, then the recovery also becomes much more complicated. So one of the things is, uh, you know, we, we talk about uh, flattening the curve and its impact on not overwhelming the healthcare system. The flattening the curve, what we don't talk enough about is also helps not overwhelm our recovery mechanisms. Uh, because we don't, the, our economic recovery or our social recovery, our confidence to be able to travel and interact with each other again is dependent on how quickly we come out of this. And if we don't flatten the curve, it's going to be really hard to build, to rebuild the trust that we have which we've taken for granted. Um, we don't have a question that if they come, if, we, if somebody comes to a university in the United States, is that a healthcare risk for us? If we get into a, a transatlantic flight, is that a healthcare risk for us? We don't question that, or we haven't questioned that in the past because we trust it. Uh, but if the biologic concerns, as you, as you put them, stay on for an extended period of time, then there will be a natural lack of trust and trust will take a long time to build. So there is a, there, the flattening the curve becomes important much more than just the impact on a healthcare system, important though that is uh, to saving lives. It, it really has an impact on how long uh, the situation, you know, how we feel about the situation. There's a, you know, psychology experiment out there somewhere. I don't know what it is, but there's something going on somewhere. Well, Sangeet, you started to um, bring us into higher education and, and, and business education with that example, that last response. And I wonder if we can continue along that line and, and talk a little bit about this. Uh, GMAC is a, a, a big player in the industry of uh, business education in the ecosystem. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, uh, um, I guess in general, and then maybe we could drill down on a couple of points. How do you see this playing out in, in business education? What are, um, you know, now that we've talked about the general aspects, if you bring that down to our, our industry and where we see the future, what do you think are the big things for us to be thinking about? Well, there's, there's the obvious, which everybody's dealing with, GMAC, every business school, every university system. And then there are the perhaps not so obvious, though everybody's beginning to realize that. So the obvious is uh, 
in a world of more social distancing, reduced travel, uh, we have technological solutions on offer, right? So everybody is going at 100 miles an hour, uh, trying to stand up uh, more remote options, online programs, uh, uh, and the like. Uh, business schools are doing that in, as part of their particular program. The GMAX doing that. We've just announced uh, a virtual GMAT exam. Uh, we are uh, uh, we do um, our events business. We piloted a whole um, virtual tour, if you will, uh, in Jakarta last week. Um, now we, so there's, there's a variety of things that we're doing. Every every university system or business school seems to be going down uh, down that path. So um, some of that is a continuation of investments people all, were already making, but they are being uh, accelerated at a more rapid uh, rate. Uh, there are consequences and impacts to that. Uh, one of the anecdotal things, for example, that we are beginning to see is um, uh, students beginning to say, I have my notion or my the value proposition of a business program, or let's call it an MBA program, is partially fact learning, trans knowledge transmission based and partially experience based. And as a matter of fact, as business educators or business education, we have spent a fair amount of time talking about the experiential value of the MBA, right? This has all been about creating the network, getting the experiences and all that. But if you take that away or diminish that in some way because people are not getting together, you are left with the knowledge transfer part of it. So the question that we're beginning to already hear candidates turn around and saying is fine, I got accepted. I, you know, this is the class that just got admitted uh, for fall 2020. Uh, uh, but if this is an online program, do I really want to pay $120,000 over a two year period in tuition for it? Uh, the value proposition is different. So, you know, if it's knowledge transfer, then maybe I can get it from a MOOC. Or maybe I can get it from a pure online program for 20,000 like Boston University or Indiana, et cetera, are offering. Why do I have to, you know, so the, the cost benefit equation has suddenly altered. And we probably are gonna see that in uh, 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 yield loss in this uh, uh, particular cycle. This is even bigger when you're talking about international mobility. So this is again, these effects that start then create, putting everybody into their particular camps, camp because uh, uh, are you really gonna travel and study across the world um, when you've got two things now changing? One is governments, because of, as you see more unemployment, there'll be more restrictions, et cetera, about job availability and work visas. So if you're um, uh, the prototypical, let's say Asian candidate wanting to study in the US, your probability of getting a job as a result of that in the US has just gotten less. At the same time, your experience now is becoming much more of an online experience. So I'm not actually even coming to the US. So I'm signing up for your very expensive MBA program, sitting at home in China or India. That value proposition that's not what we would, what we've designed our program for, or designed our more important, I think, uh, uh, pricing of our programs for. 
So something I suspect is going to reorder itself beyond the fact that everybody is going to have to go online, that they'll do. But once everybody goes online, I don't know if we've prepared ourselves for the real impact of what that actually ends up meaning. But it could be pretty fundamental. And one of the things that we are beginning to really try to monitor is to try to monitor what happened to the canary in the coal mine, by the way, I, I think it's going to be yield right now. Because right now we've made those acceptance decisions in business education. The early response is going to be students who turn around and say, thank you very much, but this is not what I signed up for. And you're going to see yield loss as a result of that. Uh, and if that becomes significant, that's going to be a strong signal to business schools that uh, something's going to have to give. And our proposition is not really designed for that uh, as it stands today. You know, I think clearly business schools are going to be in for a lot of changes. And like many faculty, I'm also teaching online. I see the changes I have to make in the way I teach, the way I interact with students, the way I manage class dynamics. And in some sense, the virus and its sort of stay-at-home orders that have been enforced in many countries is forcing businesses, business schools to go digital, go remote, go online in multiple ways. And some people argue that this will accelerate the whole digital transformation of education or business. So I was wondering whether how you saw this digital acceleration uh, picking up in the way we structure our programs, the way business, what we teach our students in terms of the kind of world they will build and the businesses they will be employed in after graduation. How is the whole digital thing going to impact uh, the current future world that we are seeing emerging? Yeah, so, so there's, there's two pieces of it, right? One is, let's just say the educational process pedagogy, if you will, I put that in that general category, and the other is content about, you know, the world of business is changing and will we, uh, will our content, uh, course content, if you will, a program content change accordingly. And personally, and maybe uh, I'm over-optimistic about that, I, I suspect we'll figure that out relatively quickly because there's a lot of people with, you know, a lot of ability working on this and there's a lot of experience to be bought in place. Yes, not every professor knows how to teach in an online format. Uh, there'll be a couple of winners and losers in that particular process. But I dare say that given a period of time and given enough resources that we will be able to get there. I worry actually more about the, the business model question because if you've looked at digitization in any other industry, or, or you know, when that whole digital transformation has happened, concepts of time and place have gone away, right? And there's been a little bit more concentration, if you will. Business schools or university systems are very much built around the notion of time and place. You know, they exist in a certain location and you come to a class at a certain point and there's an interaction which is sort of built around it. Do we start seeing what we've seen in, in entertainment or in uh, commerce and stuff like that, that you just become completely, you start creating completely, oh, let me back up. Time and place have always been what has limited scale taking over, right? Because you've always had, your 7-Eleven was built around time and place, right? And 
it wasn't the biggest score, uh, store, but it was there. It was at your It was at the street corner in your neighborhood, and it was open for an extended period of time. Well, Amazon Prime has made that irrelevant to some extent. Uh, do you start seeing some of that? So, you know, do we have, as a result of that, way too many business schools and way too many, uh, at least from a teaching point of view, a research point of view, will be different uh, faculty. And then the question is, if you don't get enough of that, then can we afford to have the faculty that we end up having? Because, um, you know, on an aggregate, I'm not talking about it at an individual school uh, level. Even if you said we needed X thousand faculty from a research point of view, you can't afford to pay them. So there is a reordering that ends up happening in the economic model of, well, I'm just using business schools as an example, but overall education as a result of that. The other, you know, other some certain other forms of professional education have different barriers, right? Medicine requires time and place. Um, you do need to learn in a more of a physical environment, if you will. Certain of the uh, sciences require a different form of laboratory collaboration, which require people to kind of come together. It's not entirely true to me that business education requires that. So could get disrupt as a result of that could get disrupted faster than the other disciplines. I don't know what you think. I mean, you obviously are much closer to this dynamic than I am, but uh, that's an area that I worry about is you take time and place again, we've got a time and place away, we've got a completely different dynamic in education, business education. No, I think you made a point very eloquently where you said time and place have prevented scale from taking over so far and that dynamics could change and that'll see a major disruption in the business place. I think business school model and I, I, and I agree with you on that. I want to touch on uh, two things. So one is what do we want to see in terms of the student, you know, qualities we would like to have them develop for the world going forward. Uh, some of them you know, are related to trends we have seen in the past. And how has the virus changed what we should be doing in terms of building student character, student profiles for the future success? That's a great. Uh, that's a great point, right? Because you know, what does leadership look like post uh, COVID nineteen? I can tell you what I believe it shouldn't look like. <laughs> Maybe we can start from that <laughs> point of view. It shouldn't look like very, you know, self-centered, individual success driven. Because it's going to be hard for leadership, which is around the self and the ego and only and, and the reflection of personal success, largely personal success, let's put it driven by financial success, etc. If if that's the way we think about our own careers in the future, or maybe the generation that's the millennial generation or the Gen Zs uh, think about themselves out in the future, then we that model of leadership is going to have a very difficult time rallying people to a common cause when we are have assuming we have more of a remotely distributed workforce. Because the glue that gets people together when you're physically distributed is some sense of mission and purpose. And you can't really exhibit or rally people around this concept of mission and purpose 
if you yourself from your own character point of view view success in purely personal economic terms so those these two things are going to be in conflict with each other and to some extent you know we have i mean the tide has been changing you can argue for a period of time post the great recession but before that really i think it's fair to say that the definition of business success or executive success was heavily driven around personal economic success uh, how much money am i going to make etc and also this notion of the corporation as purely around stakeholder uh, shareholder value as opposed to stakeholder value is purely about how much profit being the only motive that we have uh, it's going to be hard to manage the kind of workforce that we are going to end up seeing so as we talk about how we develop leaders and you know as an admissions council um, you know one of the things that we have to sort of figure out is how do we help people evaluate for that now it's tougher character traits are more much more difficult than uh, uh, intellectual traits to evaluate or measure in a reliable way uh, but and as well as the program content has to focus on developing developing that value system if you will uh, because that is the only value system i think that is going to be successful out into the future the second part is what was always true just became a lot more true collaboration communication visioning the ability to communicate direction with clarity were always important in leaders but i think just became that much more important with leaders because uh, your role or our roles as leaders or any anybody's role as a leader is really in these particular times is to do actually just two things is to be really clear clear in communicating direction vision and purpose uh, and secondly in removing bottlenecks that exists within the organization or the environment that stop the organization delivering on that vision mission and purpose the way else you can do very little else you can do when you're in lockdown at home right <laughs> and uh, while we won't always be in lockdown that kind of reality will end up playing itself so those skills are going to be much more important than you know do i know how to you know price an option using the black scholes model or you know not that that's not important but those aren't really the differentiating skills those may be necessary conditions at a certain level of the organization but the differentiating skills are going to be not functional uh, they're going to be you know what we loosely call these soft skills if you allow me to ask a personal question what do you think will change in the way you know your own leadership behaviors will evolve in the future how will you change as a result of what is happening right now uh, yeah that's uh, i mean that's something that i ask myself every single day these days uh, uh what do i need to do that's different one thing i do know is what made me successful so far is not going to make me successful tomorrow because something is different i spend an inordinate amount of time right now in communicating and listen well it's listening and communicating right it's just uh, it's uh, and and i and i would say a third thing listening communicating and protecting so there's a 
the organization also operates in some kind of a Maslowian hierarchy, right? If everybody is concerned about food, shelter, and water, they are not going to deliver what the organization needs them to deliver. So I need to actually first give everybody a sense of comfort. And it needs to be, I think, a sense of comfort around brutal honesty. I had a recently, we had an all-staff meeting and I started that by saying, listen, I'm just going to be really clear with you. I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything because everybody needs to know what's going on. Because all organizations are going through change. In 95% of our testing centers, uh, centers are shut down, which means 95% of our revenue has, has stopped. Uh, so we have no money coming in. So we have to be very clear to people and actually call it as it is and not just only paint a rolling picture, uh, rosy picture. So that we give people comfort. And sometimes, even if it's difficult, comfort is reassuring. Uh, is reassuring. Truth is reassuring by itself. Uh, the second part is we have to, you know, so what's the way out? You know, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? What do we know? What do we do not know? I mean, that's the second part is we have, I think all of us are in search of that light at the end of the tunnel, right? So even if we don't have clarity about the light, the fact that we are looking and keeping people and engaging everybody in search for that light becomes a very important piece of at least what I'm trying to end up doing. And as a result of that, making certain that everybody's on board so that we can, uh, we can find a way to that end of that tunnel. Uh, every organization I suspect is facing some amount of existential turmoil at this point of time. Well, thank you for this time, Sandy. We've covered so much and, and honestly, I could keep listening to you for uh, <laughs> several uh, more minutes. Maybe just to touch base on um, this opportunity to let you ask us a question at the same time um, might be helpful. I'd love to hear what you're hearing from your constituents, right? So you must be, in, you have a, by definition, your member schools have a unique commitment to a globalization, a globalized model, if you will, but also around emerging, around the emerging world, which potentially is going to be hugely impacted uh, one way or the other. I mean, it, you can argue that many emerging economies haven't felt the impact of the viruses yet, but will, and they're ill-prepared. So from a health and economic impact point of view, they're going to get pretty badly impacted. On the other hand, as a business school, if you start seeing this growth, this slowdown in international mobility, you can send up saying that schools in emerging economies will see a growth in demand, will be actually in a strange way beneficiaries. Uh, if you just purely looked at application volumes, which is not the entire picture. Uh, are you getting any uh, what are you hearing? I, I guess it's a really open-ended question. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a fair question. I'm afraid that my response is not going to um, overwhelm you. But uh -huh. what, what I've been hearing is mostly that we are so desperately trying to do things now uh, to, you know, ensure academic continuity 
to, you know, that we have people that are getting ready to graduate and we're not sure whether we can or can't help them to do that. We're just trying to um, ensure that the projects they had all agreed to do and committed to do um, happen. And so really the things that we're hearing, this is one reason why we're trying to take a step up a little bit and say, look, you know, how do we help schools begin to think more broadly about uh, what's happening? Within that context, what I'm hearing a lot is that it's, it's very difficult to understand and communicate and coordinate within the university environment because they're having to negotiate everything with the university that they're a part of. The university, of course, is part of a larger system that creates both constraints and, and, and things. So how do we interpret those things? I'm hearing a lot about money. You know, to be completely mm-hmm. frank, I mean, it, we're we're starting to hear much more about money and the challenges associated with you know giving money back versus not, <laughs> um, you know, what this might mean for the entering classes you put. Uh, so, right now, what I'm hearing a lot is is what what do we do right now? You know, how can we accelerate some of this? Um, less so about what what do we do tomorrow. How might this impact the way we do business? And yeah. that's why one reason why we're doing this project. Yeah, that. no, that's that's great that you do. And and this re- reminded me to Sumitro's question about what's changed in my management style. One of the things I realized, so in pretty much the last, <laughs> it's strange to think that this is only a couple of weeks old because it seems like forever, right? Uh, so I was saying so far, and so far hasn't been that long actually. It was all about my headspace was all about, oh my God, how do we deal with this? Because essentially, as we've said, our revenues have come to an absolute standstill. So down to the point where we are saying, you know, it is about money at some point of time because you've got to pay the bills, right? So we have actually called in all our lines of credit. Cash is king. I've just sort of loaded up on every form of cash that I can uh, to make certain that I can pay salaries through the end of the year and all of that. So that's been... But then there's this question of what does this mean for us? And what if the world looks different? What does it mean for us from a, a sustainability point of view? Because if you can't sustain yourself, then everything else is a little bit of a theoretical exercise, right? Uh, and one of the changes to actually to add on to my response to Sumitra's question, which I'm just beginning to pivot in, and literally it's a this week story, is I've told my management team, you worry about 2020. I'm going to spend pretty much all my energy trying to figure out what's going to happen in 2021 and make certain that we are ready for 2021 and we have the resources, whether it's the human capital resources or the financial resources for whatever comes in 2021. Because if we start worrying about 2021 in December of 2020, it's going to be ugly, right? No, I think, you know, that's also what we are seeing, at least I'm what I'm hearing when I talk to my friends who are in leadership positions. I think they also realize the need to change the focus from firefighting to strategic. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of strategic, strategic actually often means new business models, new ways of yeah. doing things, and that is very hard. Yeah. So it's not just a simple issue of taking the current business model and going to a new market, opening a new program. It's fundamental rethinking of what we are doing in business schools. So I think it's a very challenging at the same time, interesting leadership experience for everyone in the next few months. Yeah, because time is just gonna, so if you think about 
typical business model evolution between let's say analog to digital or you know sale to subscription it's always it evolves over a period of time you keep your analog business away you start your digital business because your revenue if you you know i sold you something for x amount your subscription is x divided by 10 over a period of time but my cash flow is all alters so you evolve from one model to the other what happens if you just have to go from one model to the other literally overnight right and nobody's balance sheet is ready for that it wasn't designed for that uh, uh, look at what uh, happened with adobe adobe went from a one model to another they went through a huge dip in revenues and now they're coming back up uh -huh. almost three years to come out of the I mean, so the changing a business model takes time it and takes so, time yeah it takes time yeah. You're going to have the financial resources to survive that. Because in the course of the three years, what happens if you run out of money? <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, not necessarily <laughs> the most positive one, but on that note, thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Samantha. That was Sangeet Chafla, President and CEO of GMAC, in conversation with Dan and Sumitra of GBSN. On the next installment of the podcast, we speak to President of IMD, Jean-Francois Manzoni. I think that, unfortunately, the way this crisis is being managed, certainly by national governments, is unfortunately going to further contribute to the lack of confidence that citizens have in their governments in most countries. So I think that's unfortunate because I profoundly believe that there cannot be progress without delayed gratification, the acceptance of delayed gratification. That's Jean-Francois Manzoni on the next GBSN podcast. If you haven't done so already, please click and subscribe to the podcast. And if you found value in what you've heard, we welcome you to leave a review on your platform of choice. For more on the podcast and on GBSN in general, please visit us at gbsn.org.